Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Vanessa Pygram, who's the CEO of Krantlana, the Center for Ethical Leadership, which is a partnership with um, Monash University. Welcome today, Vanessa. Thank you, Alex. So I thought today we would sort of maybe kick off in terms of what Krantlana is to give the the listeners a bit of a context, given that we're going to go into a real deep dive in terms of decision-making in a crisis environment being coronavirus. But Maybe if you could sort of give us a kickstart in terms of what Krantlana stands for. Yeah, sure. So um, Krantlana Centre for Ethical Leadership uh, has been around since 1993. And we offer, uh, I guess one of the things that we say is that we don't teach leadership skills uh, to senior executives, but we help those senior executives use their existing leadership skills to better um, purpose. Um, and our whole purpose is about helping you make uh, more ethical decisions to, to make wise and courageous decisions uh, and to really think about the, I guess, the impact of uh, your influence through your professional life and how you want to um, make change uh, in an ethical way. So we run programs that are very experiential, lots of discussion-based Um, uh, group discussions, lots of challenges about how we really think about the the current situations that we're in. Um, And and people are often quite transformed by that experience. Look, I think in terms of transformation, we've seen a huge transformation, which is is the coronavirus and and how it's changed the way um, we live, how we work, how we um, even go to and from work. And, And most of the people are still working from home. But I, I wanted to sort of, you know, touch on some of the issues that you mentioned in terms of people being courageous in decision making. Let's let's maybe kick off from there in terms of, you know, how do you go about trying to build people, you know, build people's thinking about making decisions, being courageous in a time of, you know, sometimes quite significant adversity. Yeah, it's well, you know, the thing they say around, um, and I'm, I have no idea who the quote's from, but you know, a crisis doesn't. Um, develop your character so much as reveal your character. So, you know, within a crisis, within a sort of time-compressed period of adversity, you can't suddenly develop a set of ethical values that you didn't already have. Um, There's, you know, it's almost like ethical, building your ethical um, foundations is a preventative medicine. You know, you need to be developing them and strengthening them in your daily life before a crisis hits you. And then that's when they really come to the fore. Um, So, you know, having said that, you know, often within a crisis, it it might also be that the crisis and the emergency nature of it and the speed with which you have to make decisions might actually make you stop and remember what your deep-seated values actually are. Because we do, over the years, often um, become foggy or or, um, less defined about what our true values are um, because we become very pragmatic and practical and operational in our focus. So a crisis really sharpens your thinking 
um, and can either uh, make you connect to your good, strong, deep-seated values or you can feel quite lost and at sea. It's interesting you talk about sort of people being very pragmatic. And I guess one of the challenges, particularly in the Australian economy, is that we haven't had recession now for for 30 years. It looks like we're now tipping into a potential recession. So a lot of people build their character and their values through adversity. And, you know, one of the situations where, you know, in, in an environment, particularly in the Australian environment, where you haven't had so much adversity you know, do people then have to rely on their adversity maybe as, as a child? Is that where this initial framework builds up? How do you sort of try to to pull people to understand what courage looks like, what a framework um, of, of acting in these times of adversity? You know, where, where does that come from? I'll give, it's a really excellent and quite difficult question, Alex. I mean, where does it, where does it come from? Where does your resilience come from? Of course, some of it comes from... Um, your formative years um, and what you hold as really strong, true, central anchoring values that are going to see you through tough decisions. Um, and as an adult, as a professional adult in any sector, you know, you, you are constantly balancing what your personal values are with what the organisational values are and what the organisational needs are at that time, particularly in a crisis. So this is where the... Um, uh, you know, ethical tensions and challenges will flare up. Uh, is what is being asked of me as a professional in line with what I believe or hold to be true personally? And if you're really lucky uh, and you've chosen well, you're in a place where those two things are quite aligned. Um, but a lot of us, you know, are, are especially in a time of crisis, will be asked or expected to do things that really go against the grain. I mean, the challenge of deciding uh, if you need to make people redundant, if you need to cost uh, cut costs drastically in a very short amount of time, how do you do that fairly, equitably, uh, with a long-term vision, not just a short-term quick fix? These, All of these are real decisions that, that people have had to make in the last couple of months. Um, and, you know, you, you, um, uh, your, your foundational values and your sense of what is ethical and fair um, need to be in the mix, not just how do I balance the numbers at the bottom of the balance sheet. It's an interesting piece there because you talk about fairness and, you know, and ethical at the same time. And, you know, in this particular environment, we're also running up against you know, the need for expediency um, mm. and, and the need to sort of almost suspend the usual practices, particularly as we look to, to make people redundant or cut costs. You know, how do you balance the, the, the fairness aspect with the need to be courageous and, and also expedient in how we make our decisions? Well, you know, one thing is that you rely on, on, on others as well. I mean, uh, some decisions are made in a solitary way, but you know, these larger decisions should be um, made with good advice around you. So, you know, you put your thinking to the test. You, you, you apply rigour to, um, you know, the opposing views. Um, you do all of this in a compressed amount of time, of course, but, uh, you know, I would say you, you don't abandon the good practices that you, that you have in your decision-making um, in a time that's not of crisis. It might just be that the time 
uh, period is compressed. But, you know, the things that you can do to ensure that you are um, uh, not doing more damage through your very quick decision-making is to test the decision with other trusted others who might give you an opposing view, who might say to you, yes, that's all very well to do that particular action. It'll, it'll help us in the next month, but what does it look like a year down the track? Um, you know, we, we obviously all have an eye on not just how do we deal with the crisis right now, but how do we ensure that our organisations, our clients, our stakeholders, our employees and, and peers um, are in a, the best possible position for recovery in the months ahead. Uh, so it's not easy. It's absolutely not easy. And it's all happening in a very quick amount of time. But there are key um, techniques that you can use, one of which is to have trusted others around you who will challenge your thinking in a constructive way. Can we dig into this trusted others piece? Because, you know, when you when you sit in an organisation sometimes, you know, there, there feels to be this dichotomy between, you know, the A team and the B team. And that's a very, very simple way of looking at it. But it feels like there's this ex- executive group that just doesn't understand the people on the floor. And, and so how do you sort of have trusted others so that it actually is to the betterment of the whole organisation and the whole organisation can sort of understand these values um, and sort of be on board and sort of realise that when there are some sort of fast decisions that are made, that they're made in the best interest of the whole organisation and not sort of seen as a, a way to cut certain people and it's not a personal attack or, or anything like that and that there is, a, you know, a, a, a sense of value um, across the whole group. You know, there's not that, you know, one particular um, part is is seen as dispensable. Yeah. Um, the, well, the building of trust is, is uh, difficult to do from scratch within a crisis. So this is where, um, you know, the, the investment of time and effort in, in um, building trust and transparency uh, across your organisation is something that should be happening all the time because it, it serves you very well in these times of crisis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, depending on the size of your organisation, um, you know, there are things that you that I would recommend in terms of the executive group always having um, outlets or, or mechanisms by which um, other parts of the organisation can feed uh, up uh, constructive criticism, feedback, questions, that there's a culture of being able to um, uh, question and challenge uh, in a way that's for the good of the organisation long term. So, and as an executive, if you are only talking to other executives, then you're probably doing yourself uh, a disservice as well. Uh, If you don't understand or have some connection to what is the what are the impacts of your, the decisions that you're making at executive level? What are the what are the real life impacts of those decisions on the rest of the organisation, right down to the most junior member of your team? Um, y- you are you are setting up um, a, a disconnect that that is not healthy and is not going to serve you during these um, uh, compressed um, times. So there's the building of trust that's really important and long term. Uh, and a bit like just general health, uh, approach to health of the organisation. And then during the crisis or a crisis itself, um, 
the communication and the style of communication of tough decisions is a really key element to um, to 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 build uh, a sense of uh, of fairness. It might be tough fairness, but if you communicate the tough decisions in a way that has as much transparency as possible, that explains the reasons why tough decisions are being made. Um, that indicates that the executive team are taking a hit as much as um, other parts of the organisation, leading by example. Uh, that requires a very open and honest and um, almost vulnerable style of communication with your organisation. I think people pick up pretty quickly if they think information is being hidden from them, and and that doesn't that certainly doesn't help um, during a crisis. I, I totally agree. I think I think the need for information, or at least the you know the information that's democratised, so that everyone is part of decisions and sort of hearing about it. Maybe they don't have the same vote in terms of decision making, but at least that they're sort of not hearing things through the water cooler or other sort of channels via text message or Slack or something else, you know, because that always sort of starts some some real um, issues within a within an organisation to keeping people all on the same um, page is, is, is critical. You know, particularly in a crisis, is there a particular um, approach with, with the way communication should be done? You know, is this through like town hall meetings? Is this through, you know, an, an update each week at a particular time? You know, how, how important is that in terms of this regularity in communications versus in sometimes in a crisis is really haphazard sort of emails at all, all times of the day or night um, to update their staff? Yeah, it's you don't want to be adding to that sense of chaos. I think that the the sense of um, and really just speaking from my my personal um, experience in the first you know two or three weeks of the sort of shutdown and everyone moving to work from home, there was there was an accelerated sense of um, chaos and quick decisions and information going everywhere, um, and it it. Um, it's not helpful, I think, for to to allay people's um, sense of anxiety or uncertainty about what what lays, lies ahead. Um, so, again, it depends on your team and your organisation and how you normally communicate. How big the team is, um, but I think it's really important to have uh, certain times, whether it's once a week or once a fortnight. Um, which is more of a town hall type meeting so that everyone has the opportunity, whether it's 80 or 100 people at a time, to hear the same information at the same time and have a chance to ask questions or at least just listen to the questions that other people have. Um, at the same time, then, within your own team, you know, you can't just rely on those um, fortnightly or, or weekly meetings um, I've noticed um, an increase in the amount of communication uh, in our team on a daily level uh, because you have to, you, you can't rely on the incidental, um, you know, bumping into someone in the kitchen or in the corridor or overhearing a conversation that's happening and then, and then joining in. You have to be much more um, um, uh, overt about uh, about. And I sort of track how often am I communicating with each of my team members uh, to make sure that they're getting the individual attention as well as the team meetings, which give a sense of group cohesion. 
Is that one of the benefits you, you would say maybe have come from this environment in terms of now you know, leaders having to really make you know, a, a much greater attention towards uh, you know, fair, fair distribution of information? I think so. I think so. I mean, as a as a CEO, I have to, I have to admit, it, it it's exhausting. <laughs> it just it, it it's uh, there is actually um, uh, research on the uh, neurological impact of Zoom meetings or, or you know video conferencing and how um, the extra tiredness that comes in from speaking through the screen all the time. Um, but it's absolutely necessary. Um, and and uh, I guess from personal experience, what I'm finding is that I'm being, I've noticed myself being much more um, uh, revealing of the thoughts that are going into the decisions because um, because you are missing out on the incidental conversations with your team. So therefore, I tend to explain a lot more about what has led up to a particular decision or I'm re- revealing more to my team about um, the financial impact uh, of the crisis um, on us and what that's going to mean for budgets in the future, etc. Whereas I might not have done that so often um, in a face-to-face situation. It's interesting that that point. I know in the in the investment space, some of the commentary that I've heard is that uh, that there seems to be some more upfront conversations as people were working from home and and being part of a Zoom call. Uh, so there's another interesting piece where you might see some more transparency from from some employees who feel more comfortable to talk because they're they're sitting at home and uh, much more open to to adding into the mix. Yeah, I I agree. It, it's um, yeah, it, there's not it's not one size fits all though, and I I think sometimes you can um, uh, miss the signals from say, the quieter members of your team on, on a video conference meeting. Um, so if I, I'd say it comes and goes and you still need to be quite attentive to who's not speaking up and perhaps they don't want to speak up in a group situation. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a curious thing, isn't it, just staring at a, a, a gallery view of faces uh, everyone just staring at you and 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 trying to read the um, signals uh, as they come across. It, it's it's a really it is very strange, and I know for some people that are traditionally introverts, it doesn't really help any. Even though they can still speak, it still doesn't provide that same sort of help that they need. Uh, you know, I think one of the the questions I wanted to sort of get to, and we talk about sort of leadership as well, is that you know not everyone is built for these sort of situations, um, and you know, in this sort of crisis environment, the need to be agile becomes so critical. And, you know, for leaders, you know, they have to, to bring everyone along on the journey. Um, and some people just aren't able to sort of work in the same way as, as others in these sort of crisis times. So how do you sort of prepare your team and, and almost, you know, can understand the, the fear and anxiety that some people have when you're going through such, such change? Um, it's, yes, it's, um, monitoring everyone's, um, responses to, uh, speed and change and uncertainty is a core part of the leader's role, um, particularly now. And, um, 
one of the things that would help would help is that there's 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 a lot being asked of uh, of of leaders at the moment to be uh, simultaneously looking at the long term um, uh, future of their organisations, um, managing a crisis in the moment, in the very present moment, making very pragmatic uh, decisions, whilst also trying to think about recovery and plan for recovery. And at this, you know, reporting to boards who who now um, are wanting more information, probably more operational information than they have in the past, because they all need to understand and um, and, and support the CEO in this time. And at the same time, the CEO or team leader or senior executive is also expected to have um, a heightened sense of the um, health and well-being uh, of their team as everyone goes through a very anxiety-invoking um, time. So there's, a, there's an awful lot being asked of uh, people in leadership roles right now. And um, it would be a very special person who can do all of those things equally. Um, so uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, springs to mind is to uh, empower, embolden your, uh, you know, trusted members of your team to look after each other and so that it's not all just being channeled through, through you know, one point of view from, from the CEO, that there, is, uh, that there are multiple conversations going on um, from peer to peer uh, on a support level uh, that feeds up to the CEO so they're aware of the issues but not necessarily feeling that they're the only ones responsible for looking after the team health. So I think it's about it's about um, really understanding the resources at your fingertips, the, the human resources, the the, the um, particular strengths of your team, and how they can look after each other. Um, and you're absolutely right, Alex. That that some people really freeze during a time of uncertainty, and it triggers all sorts of um, other fears. And and particularly, job security is a very real issue. We're not through this crisis yet. Um, so all you can really do is be as um, upfront with your team as possible, I think, about the, the, the financial situation that the organisation's in, the decisions and the challenges that you as the leader are, are being faced with so that's not a mystery to them, um, and uh, engender a, a, an atmosphere and a culture that we're working through this together. It's interesting you, you talk about you know, this sort of building the culture. I think one of the benefits for a long time is remuneration and incentive schemes that were sort of designed to to build the, the right sort of culture. Um, there's obviously been some negatives that come with some of these incentive schemes as well, but particularly in a time where, where there is some financial restraint that needs to be held, um, some of these incentive schemes now have been on pause. You know, bonuses and various KPIs sort of seem to fall by the wayside. So you know, do you then face another challenge within these organisations that, you know, how do you keep people engaged, um, keep people working together towards an end goal when they've been told that remuneration has been cut or incentive schemes have, have been cut likewise? Well, this is where the fairness um, issue comes back into it. If, if, if the cuts are across the board, then that is more, becomes more acceptable or, or 
or more palatable to people if they feel that only one part of the organisation is being asked to take the pain and that others are being protected from that pain, then that's where further divisions will, will start to fester. And, and the thing to keep in mind is that there's an immediate response to dealing with, with, um, with cuts that has to happen. But, but if, you, if, if your organisation wants to rebuild and wants to keep those people and you want their loyalty and, and for them to feel good about working with you and for you in the future, then how you treat them now is absolutely central to your future success. Mm-hmm. You know, well, the other thing that we, we obviously touched on with with ethical leadership, you know, is is the need for some sort of an ethical DNA. And that's one of the areas that I wanted to sort of get your thoughts on in the terms of, you know, this type of environment, you know, in the time of environment where everyone's looking to 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 grow and, and build their business, which is now challenged, are we are we likely to see more of this ethical fade? You know where where people sort of push ethics alongside you know on, on the side as they try to just survive. Look, it, it is it is a risk. It is a real risk. Um, and ethical fade is a is a, a a risk. Anyway, I think it within a within a crisis situation, it's probably less about ethical fade and more about ethical um, drop off or you know you know. Cutting the cord in a way to say, look, we do, we can't deal with ethics right now. We can't act ethically because we just need to fix this thing, or we need to, um, you know, lose a hundred people, or whatever the the, the quick um, uh, and drastic decision might need to be. Um, however, I would say that the more enlightened leaders are um, recognizing that now more than ever is when there is a not just a role for ethics but an absolute opportunity for uh, organisations and those who lead them to um, not just deal with, with what's necessary in the immediate but as we look towards rebuilding and recovery to be using an ethical lens to think about what is the organisation and the nation and the society that we want to rebuild into. And this is where ethics really plays a central role. Do we really just want to um, make some cuts and then snap back to how we were um, and not learn from this experience? Can can you give a little bit more context on sort of, you know, if you had to run a you know a series of ethics for for an organisation, you know I, I know that there used to be this analogy that you know ethic good ethical decision making is you know anything that you feel comfortable doing that doesn't go on the front page of you know the 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 daily newspaper for example, and that was sort of seen as you know if that's what would be on the daily newspaper, do you feel proud of that or, or would it be you know a disgrace? You know, is, is there a, is another sort of framework that you use? Oh yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, there's a spectrum of how people think about the about ethics or the, the term ethics, and and down one end is the um, you know the, the front page headline that the the uh, where we really looking about was I illegal um, activity or fraud or things that don't pass the pub test, as they say. You know, that's just that's that's not, uh, it might be within the letter of the law, but um, it's not really acceptable. So you've got, you know, down the legality end, um, 
And then particularly within the finance sector, you know, there's a heavy reliance on codes and rules um, and, you know, the sort of compliance end of, of, of what you must or must not do within, within your sector. Um, but that's not enough. That's almost the bare minimum because then, um, you know, the, the further along the line of, of, of the spectrum of ethical decision-making, you know, you move more into, well, how do we use um, an ethical framework um, to engender positive leadership? You know, all these issues we've already touched on about being transparent with your team, building trust and um, certainty and reliability within your workplace organisation, um, you know, engendering a, a culture where people can speak up and question and not feel that if they ask a question they might lose their jobs, uh, which only leads to um, ethical fading and, and ethical blind spots. You know, how do you increase productivity and team engagement through having a healthy ethical workplace? And then further along the spectrum, further away from just the reliance on codes and rules, is, is the area of ethical leadership, which is really about future vision. And it's thinking about, you know, what is the society? How, how is my work and my decisions and this organisation, how is this actually helping or hindering uh, the growth of the type of society that I want to live in? And there's um, a, a philosopher that we uh, refer to quite often, Kwame Apaya, who, uh, you know, wrote an article called uh, What Will Future Generations Condemn Us For? And I think this is a very, very useful framework to think of. You know, when we think back on past generations, you know, we look on things like slavery or tobacco advertising, um, you know, with a kind of horror and a surprise that it was that was ever normal. So if you think about what are we doing now that we think imaginatively, what will our grandchildren say about our daily work practices now? Um, what will they be shocked by? What will they think was um, an absolutely counterproductive or unfair practice? Um, and that's, that's the big thinking, creative, imaginative leap end of ethics um, that is far away from just relying on a, a codes and rules. It, it's funny when when I think about that sort of what can we be condemned for, and, and there's a lot of things that change, and it can actually uh, raise a, a lot of uh, question marks in your head about a lot of what we do, right? And and sometimes I think there's some real clashes of ideology between sort of how ethics works and and some forms of capitalism, um, and it seems a little bit extreme. But when you start to think about how we charge for for service for advice, obviously the financial services sector has had a lot of trouble with respect to you know, fees for for no no service and so forth. You know, finance is, a, is an interesting space, particularly when it has to sort of look at you know, what's what's fair, what's ethical, um, and and the, those lines are extremely blurred. You know, so how, oh, how do yeah. you? Yeah. How, how do you? Sorry, I interrupted you. How oh, how, you. Yeah. How do you? How do you try and give yourself a purpose? How do you work out where to sit there? It feels like a, a difficult fence to to ride on. Well, I didn't want to give you an, uh, a sort of existential um, crisis today, Alex. But yes, it is. It is the big questions, and and um, I think finance is a fascinating area. Finance, superannuation, all of these things where 
you know, on one level from an purely an outsider's point of view, you know, I'm not from the finance sector, you know, you, you could think, well, it's all about controlling risk or managing risk. It's about numbers. It's, you know, quite clean. But really the impact that the finance sector has on people's decisions about the emotional and the psychological side of, of um, the economy, uh, where is superannuation investing its funds? You know, what, what are the ethics of investing in fossil fuels during a climate emergency, for example? You know, what, what are the, um, the, the, the levers that the finance sector pulls and pushes are um, enormously powerful. And therefore, more than ever, the sector needs to be thinking about the deeper ethical impact of the decisions that are being made. It's not just about numbers. It affects people's livelihoods, their health, their well-being, family certainty. It, 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 it impacts on every part of our lives. So maybe final question, you know, as, as we think about ethics and, and leadership in this time of crisis and, and beyond, right, we, let's, let's, you know, look beyond this current uh, coronavirus, there'll be other financial crises that, that come out there. You know, what are the sort of um, tools or techniques or case studies that you know, leaders need to be running through to, to get themselves into preparation for, for these sort of things? I know, you know, a crude example is the military runs through all sorts of, you know, scenarios and testing, you know, do, do enough businesses do that? I, I don't think they do. Um, and, yeah, the, the, the military is a, a very good example of the amount of scenario planning they do. Um, uh, and, and some businesses do it, but it, but it doesn't seem to be common practice. It does because it takes time and it, it, it requires um, a large leap of creative thinking as well, to imagine alternative futures. Um, you know, uh, one key uh, technique might be, you know, your, your um, the, the pre-mortem, post-mortem sort of approach to, to looking back, uh, you know, Im- imagining that a decision you've made uh, has gone terribly wrong and we're now a year down the track and we're looking back on why it went wrong and to sort of reverse engineer the decision you're about to, to, to make. Um, th- there's no one quick fix. That's the thing. You know, um, developing your ethical muscle and a sense of um, some rigour around your critical thinking uh, is a discipline and it requires constant practice. Uh, and it helps if you've got other people around you who you can test those ideas with, that you're not a lone voice in your organisation, you know, raising your hand and saying, I think we should pause for a moment and just think about the impact of this decision. Um, So I'm afraid I don't have a quick fix for you or one case study to to, um, solve all the the problems here. It is about turning your mind to uh, a a longer-term view of the imagining the impact of your decision right now, not just on you or your team or your organisation, but on the people who are not uh, as visible to you. Who is just outside your line of sight that your decision has an impact on? And are you making the best 
most ethical, most sound uh, decision that will not um, create more unfairness or injustice for others. It's a fascinating place to, to end and almost represents the, the pub test again, you know, where with someone totally outside your network, you know, hears something and, and looks at it and says, mm, that doesn't seem right or, you know, it's it's that that person outside your periphery that, that views your decision-making. Is, it, is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I would recommend that um, you have people in your, your, your group of trusted advisors and peers who are outside your industry who you um, are, are happy to uh, listen to, who you are willing to listen to and to get an external view. Um, you know, you may still go ahead with that same action, but it, if it does nothing else than give you a moment to pause and reflect and consider the fuller 360-degree view of what you're about to do, that's the best chance you have of knowing, of being able to live with that decision in the future. Mm-hmm. All right, Vanessa, that's a very great place to, to leave it. Thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.